This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The nail in the coffin! Welcome to the Nail in the Coffin, episode number 29. Tom Valentino, Travis Yuley. We are recording on Wednesday night. Trav, how's it going? Great, Tino. How are you, my man? I'm doing great. Got to tell you, I got a good feeling about this one. This show? Yeah. Yeah, this okay. episode. I don't know. I like just it. some weeks, you you just kind of you go through the motions and you make sure you get it done and you just do the best you can. Other weeks, you just got a feeling like uh, it's going to be a good one. And I don't know why just the last day and a half or so, I've been thinking about it. And I'm like, we're going to have a good show this week. I love the optimism. Although I think we have a pretty good show every week. We try, we try, but well, uh, let's get into it. Yeah, let's do it. Hey, before we get rolling, I want to throw a few things out first at the beginning. Cause I haven't done this in a while. So everybody out there, if uh, this is your first time checking out our show, Welcome aboard. Travis and I do this about once a week. We're a couple of Cleveland boys, love to talk sports. Uh, we occasionally come up with some insightful things to say, and uh, we like to share them with you. We uh, we don't swear gratuitously, but uh, we do reserve the right to throw out an occasional four-letter word uh, every now and then as uh, events uh, merit it. And uh, if you like our show, um, go subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music and make sure you uh, you tell all your friends. All right, that out of the way, um, let's talk about the Cavs. Um, we know that uh, we're going to be back in the Eastern Conference Finals. We know it's going to be starting either Sunday or Tuesday, uh, depending on how long this uh, Raptors heat rock fight uh, keeps dragging on. Um, game five of that series is... In progress as we are recording this, they're in the second half. Um, Trev, let me was, ask you. What? I'll go say ahead. From what I've from what I've seen so far, uh, it, it took them five games to uh, approach something that could qualify as watchable basketball. So that's progress. This series has been terrible beginning to end. So it's nice to see a couple teams actually playing like uh, like NBA basketball instead of the Big Ten. It, it's it's been rough up to this point. I'm I'm not gonna lie. I, I don't really have a whole lot of ways to sugarcoat it. But uh, just because it's close doesn't mean it's good. Um, I'll tell you who is good is uh, our Cavaliers. They've uh, they've been looking phenomenal. Um, They're quite good. Polished off another sweep here in the second round on uh, Sunday. Uh, finished off Atlanta um, down in Atlanta and uh, heading back to the uh, the East Finals now. Uh, Trev, let me just ask you, um, how are you feeling about the overall state of the team? Um, overall, it's hard to feel bad about it. I think, um, the way they're playing now is sort of more of what we expected them to see, uh, to see the way that everyone's been shooting it. It sort of seems like they're at a point where a, a different guy is gonna go off every night and uh, sort of the overall theme that I've seen is that, they haven't needed a a uh, trying to think of how to term it, but a, a typical LeBron takeover game that that we've grown accustomed to seeing from him uh, pretty consistently in the playoffs over the last decade, where no one else really seems to be doing much, and he just kind of says, "Give me the ball, and I'm going to go do some stuff," um, which is encouraging because we know that that's always a possibility. Uh, so the fact that we haven't needed it, I think, is great. And the way that uh, I think when we saw Ty Lue take over in the middle of the season, we expected a, them to look more like this, uh, that high-tempo offense. Um, obviously, lately, they're relying on the three a lot. But um, overall, it's hard to be too disappointed with how they've looked. We'll get into the three-point shooting in a minute. But let, let's go back to what you were saying about LeBron. I got to be honest at the end of the regular season, and if you saw the way he was playing um, for the last month or two, 
Um, we even talked about this, right, as this, the regular season wrapped up. He was really starting to ramp it up. That, that game that they played against Atlanta in the final week of the regular season where they clinched the one seed, I think he played like the entire an entire half of that game and really put up huge numbers, and it was one of those classic LeBron dominates performances. And it's like you said, he has not had that. I really thought we were going to be seeing like a one of these all-time transcendent postseasons from him. And that's not to say that he's playing bad. I mean, he's not. He's still averaging uh, 23, uh, 8 rebounds, 7 assists, 2.5 steals. I mean, he's playing well, uh, but he just hasn't had to go bonkers like what we've seen in the past. And um, I- I'm surprised. Um especially in in the road games. That's the thing I think it's jumped out to me even above uh, everything else is you kind of expect your role players to step up and have big games in the uh w- when you're playing at home. Um just cuz it's a more comfortable environment, you got the crowd behind you, everything else, and you expect your stars to carry you on the road. And again, LeBron's not playing bad on the road, but you want to take a guess out of the four road playoff games that they've had so far, how many times he's led the team in scoring. Um, Since you're asking the question, I'm going to guess zero. That is correct. He has not had the uh, high point total for the Cavs in any of their four road playoff games, and they've had a couple of close ones. So the fact that, and I know he had the, the, the key sequence at the end of game four against Atlanta, but... Um, by and large, um, it's just really incredible the way the rest of these guys around him have, have stepped up. And, and I think that was one of the things that you know I was talking about on, on Twitter the other night is, um, just like you said, it, it's a real team for once. And for so many years, in the first LeBron stint, it was just LeBron and, and a bunch of guys. And last year, it kind of devolved into that just because of the injuries. And this is a, I, this feels far and away like the best performance from a supporting cast I've, we've ever seen from the Cavs, right? Uh, without question. Um, I mean, we look at back uh, middle of the season when they made that Channing Fry trade. Um, I'll admit I was dead wrong about that trade when I said I didn't expect to see a whole lot from Channing Fry. And to be quite honest, if, if we, we never see him again, that's that one performance um, he put on the other night where he seemingly couldn't miss and for whatever reason, he just everything he was touching seemed to go up and in. Um, he he or he made he validated that trade in that one game, and he's had some really good games uh, since he got traded before that as well. So I don't mean to diminish it and say that he hasn't done anything yet, but um, no, the fact that a different guy steps up every night and they've been able to figure out which which. Uh, which guys in the position to step up, I think speaks to, um, I, I, I do think it's still a lot on LeBron's leadership because he's still the guy facilitating a lot of that. Uh, but also on the way that Ty Lue's coached this team. Um, he's really put everybody in the position to, uh, you know, if they get the ball, um, they get it in a good position. And if a guy has a hot hand or uh, he thinks they're in a good position to lean on a certain guy like Kevin Love we saw in game four, um, he's identified that really early and exploited it. I'm really impressed with what Ty Lue has done in the postseason. The, the only head-scratching move for me was not playing Channing Fry at all in game one against Detroit. But to his credit, I mean, he learned pretty quickly from that. And it's been a complete role reversal for uh, Fry and uh, Timo since then. And um, obviously it, it's working out well. And I mean, He's gone up against some pretty good coaches in both of these rounds. Uh, Stan Van from uh, Detroit um, certainly has had a very good coaching career everywhere he's been, and I think we agreed that he got the most out of that Pistons roster that could have uh, been reasonably expected this year. And, you know, uh, I I think some of the adjustments that, that Coach Lou was making in that series had Detroit on their heels. And then Budenholzer from Atlanta, I mean, he was the coach of the year last year. And he comes from that Popovich coaching tree and is certainly one of the most respected coaches in the league. And, I mean, he got flat-out pantsed by Lou, I thought. Um, That game three, Cavs fell behind, uh, what was it, by about 13 points there, late third quarter. And they came out in the early fourth 
with the lineup that uh, I believe it paired up Fry and Love up front, and they took Tristan out. And Al Horford came out and flat out said after that game, we were not prepared for that. Like their coaching staff did not prepare him for a, a lineup um, that that uh, that the Cavs put together there, and being able to to pull moves like that, I mean that that kind of stuff it matters. I mean we always say it's the NBA is a players' league, but I think we're learning that good coaching uh, can make a difference in these playoff series. Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm not gonna truthfully that that move that they hadn't game plan for. Um, I'm not very high on Boonholzer. I just really don't think he's that good of a coach. I mean, th- he coached them to a great regular season last year. Um, but outside of that, they haven't looked good in big games at all, I don't think. Um, obviously, they've gotten swept twice by the Cavs now um, in back-to-back seasons. And that move, that um, the, that lineup with Fry and Love, I don't think that's that's insanely hard to adjust for. That team, they just didn't. Um, I'm not sure that they, uh, I think if they slightly adjusted their offense a little bit, um, it could have put a lot of pressure on, um, on Ty Lue to not stick with that lineup for too long, because I'm not sure with, with the guys that Atlanta has, uh, Millsap and Horford in particular, um, the way that those guys can play towards the basket, I think they could have, could have, if they matched up well. Um, and ran any sort of offense could have easily exploited having Fry and Love on the field or on the field on the floor at the same time. <laughs> um, they didn't adjust. I didn't think at all at all in that entire series, though not just that game. Um, th- they just look like a lost team to me. They don't, and I don't think it's. Um, I don't think it's just Budenholzer. I think their whole team turtles up when they're in big games, with the possible exception of Millsap. Um, he, he he's pretty steady. I think he's been pretty consistent for them, but Horford's supposed to be an all-star and that guy's a complete non-factor for the entire series. Um, Teague as well. When you have Teague, Teague's supposed to be an all-star and one of these top tier guys. And he was on the bench during crunch time in game four. I would not be surprised if Teague is not with that team next year. I, I, th- I think his contract might be up. Um, I, I'd have to go back and look that up for sure, but it, it kind of seems like they might want to make Schroeder the guy running the point for them going forward. That's an interesting one because uh, I'm not so sure about him. He seems like a guy that kind of plays hard. He, he's the guy you like to have on your team off the bench. I'm not sure you could put a full load on him. Um, I guess we'll find out, but um, he had that one game where he shot the ball really well, but outside of that, he didn't do a ton uh, against us either. It, uh, it certainly seemed like, as a whole, Atlanta just kind of had that resigned look of just they, – they came in very confident in the series, and, and they felt like they had learned their lessons from what happened last year, and the Cavs just went and um, decimated them in a completely different fashion and a completely different method from what they had used last year, and Atlanta just seemed, like, dumbfounded by that. Yeah, I heard some <laughs> – I didn't realize this was the thing, but uh, apparently a handful of people on the internet refer to, refer to the Hawks as the Spurs East. Um, if the Spurs were literally, like, worse at every position, um, like top to bottom on the roster, maybe. Um, but, but I'm not sure who in the world thought – that the Hawks at any point, I, I think it's something that goes back to last year, the way that they played during the regular season or something. But um, that's just a team that has a, a lot of good pieces, but not nearly enough to ever get you over the hump, I don't think. So do we think they're good or not? Good? Yeah. Is Atlanta a good team? Eh, it depends on the barometer of good. What do, you, what do you define as good? Are they ever going to be a championship contender? No. Uh, they, they'll win a, a couple series here and there, one or two playoff series each year, but they'll never beat one of the elite teams, I don't think. Um, at least not as they're currently constituted, and definitely not if they lose a Jeff Teague or someone like that. I think that's the thing that just kind of it makes me stop and think for a little while, just because you see some of these national guys before the series starts, and they're 
picking the Cavs to win, but they're saying, oh, this Atlanta team, you know, they got the second best defense in the league throughout the regular season. This is a team that could give the Cavs some trouble. Uh, they're going to push them to six games. And, and Cavs in six was kind of a popular prediction. And then the Cavs go out and blow their doors off in four. And I just feel like after the fact, oh, Atlanta sucks and, and, and they're they're a pretender and, and they were never really going to do And it's just like, I feel like that short change is what the Cavs do, do a little bit. I think that's the national perspective. And I think, um, personally, I think we're finally seeing the Cavs get some of the credit that they probably deserved all along. Um, because they're, I think they're finally putting it together um, for for complete games. I mean, they've looked, I think they've probably, if, if we're being honest, in Golden State, um, been hard to evaluate because Curry's been out for about half the playoffs. But if you're looking at, I, I don't think anyone's looked as good as the Cavs have these playoffs. Um, not just because they've swept them, because they haven't lost all playoffs, but they've had some dominant wins. I mean, you look at a couple of those games against Atlanta, they were just, especially the one, I mean, they were 40 at one point, I think. Uh, I don't think we've met since then, right? Right. I don't think we, we, we met. <laughs> have we met since, have we talked since, um, since the Atlanta series even started? I don't think, right? Uh, uh, I think last time we talked, I was think the there might've been one. one game in. Okay. Um, but yeah, so they've looked, the, the most complete they're making the best adjustments Ty Lue is coach is not coaching like a guy who's been in the league for half a season um who's been a head coach in the league for half a season I should say um the adjustments he's making are incredible and the way that the way the guys are answering the call is is I think what we hoped for um all along I would completely agree with you in terms of them being the most impressive team in the playoffs thus far uh, just because uh, I mean, you look at what Golden State's gone through to this point, and I know they're up 3-1 right now, and they're probably going to close out the Blazers tonight. But um, yeah, that, that has been a, a pretty competitive series. And, and yes, yeah, Steph Curry was out for the first, um, what was that, three games in that series. But, I mean, he came back in, in game four there, and he hung 40 on um, on the Blazers. And um, I, I just... I'm, I, the terms I try to think of it in is like, what if those uh, second round opponents were reversed for uh, Cleveland and Golden State? Like if Atlanta was playing Golden State in this round, would that series look a whole lot different? I don't think the Blazers are any better than the Hawks. No, I agree with that. Although I think Damian Lillard is. Um, he's better more, than any. He, yeah, I, I, that, that's fair. He's better he's than anything capable. in Atlanta. He's, he's a guy that could at any time win a game by himself. I don't think Atlanta has anyone like that. Um, that's a great point. So I'll give I'll give him that. Um, but overall, as a team, I wouldn't expect Portland to win more than maybe one game against the Cavs the way that they're playing right now. Um, and I would expect there to be some, maybe not 40-point games where you make 25 threes, but um, I would expect there to be some games where the Cavs just blow past them um so yeah I'm, I'm with you i don't think i don't think portland is is considerably better than atlanta um and i'm drawing a blanket who golden state played in the first round houston houston uh houston's houston's just this weird team that everyone kind of agrees has a couple really 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 good players and for whatever reason they suck um <laughs> so they're just sort of that weird team that no one can really evaluate, I think. Did you see um, any of Inside the NBA last night? After I, I read about it. I didn't watch it. I, I saw, um, I read some of what uh, Dwight Howard was saying, and I think it, I don't know, I think they were just, it, it, it's, from what I can tell, it seemed like a pretty decent, like, uh, PR move for him. It was fascinating to watch. Kind of him quite a bit, I think. I, it was, it was fascinating because, uh, for those who didn't see it, Dwight Howard sat in on inside the NBA, the, the post-game show for TNT last night after uh, OKC and San Antonio. And the, the rest of the crew there really kind of put him on the spot, asking him about what he wants to do with the rest of his career. It's time to get serious. You know, what are you doing with yourself? Can you actually win with James Harden as a teammate? And um, Barkley was really... Uh, 
putting the screws to him and you know, uh, Ernie Johnson's normally the, the host for that show. And I think he was at the sports Emmys last night. So, uh, Matt Weiner was in filling in for him. And, and I thought he did it just a fantastic job of when, when Dwight Dwight tried to start giving like the cliched answers, like he would not let him off the hook and was really pressing him to give some real answers and open up. And, um, it was great television. And, you know, I always say that that's the best studio show in sports. And that was just a great oh, example. Why? agree completely um I, the way that those guys I, I think they have a weird dynamic i think in that maybe not dynamic uh dynamic isn't the word but they have it feels like they have this weird uh i don't know this the way that they interact with each other just isn't like anything we see in any other studio shows everyone else is very rigid and i feel like every other studio show you have one guy like an ernie johnson who kind of sits there and pushes things around to three or four guys who are all playing the same role. Um, while on this show, every single guy provides something different, I think. Yeah. And I've read um, stuff about the way that TNT does their show. And those guys are very adamant about, they do not want to do any sort of rehearsals or uh, heavy prep work. I mean, they're, they're putting in the work and, and gathering their thoughts and, and doing their homework and things like yeah, that. They're but they're, they're not like rehearsing their discussions before the red light comes on. It's very organic and, and um, really natural. And uh, I think that's a very different way of doing a studio show compared to anything else you're going to see on TV. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, I really, the only other studio shows I ever watch, are the NFL ones, and those are all cookie cutter and boring and basically the same show. Um, every channel has one, and they're all exactly the same, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, the only one that I really make a point to watch usually is the TNT one, and it's it's as good as they get. You kind of wish more sports could uh, could find that sort of show and, and and put something together like that, but no one really seems to be able to duplicate it. Did, uh, speaking of NFL studio shows, did you see that ESPN is apparently getting rid of Ray Lewis and Chris Carter? And Chris Carter. And they're yeah. bringing in Randy Moss? Yeah, and uh, I think Ditka is moving to like a different role. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't um, hear that. Yeah, he's supposed to just do something from like, I think it's just going to be like a little, uh, like a clip or something from his house. I can't tell what it is exactly, but he's not going to be in studio anymore. Well, you know, maybe uh, maybe Ray Lewis will have a little bit of extra time on his hands. He can go back and look for his old white suit he now. Could find that, he could find the magical white suit. Hey, now. It was hilarious. He had, um, I, I, someone shared like a thing online, and I, every time I watch it, I laugh and I cringe at the same time. Um, back when that like Ray Rice stuff came out. Oh, no. And he was talking about, you know, I don't exactly remember what the context was or what he was saying, but he was talking about Ray Rice, and he's like, he said it with a straight face. I, I don't think he even realized how hilarious it would come off, but he says, there's some things you cover up and there's some things you can't. And he just kept going on with his thought. And it was like, you realize you helped cover up two murders, right? <laughs> like, and, and you pled guilty to it. You, you're on record as having, uh, having aided someone with this. And you say this to another guy, like, how anyone on ESPN ever let him take like the moral high ground on any issue ever is just beyond me. All right. So anyway, the Cavs <laughs> got a little sidetracked there. <laughs> it's just he's I, one of, he's, I have he's, nowhere good to go with that. I, I I don't know what to do there. He's he's one of those guys that just every time I hear people like talking him up about you know what a great player he was, he just makes my blood boil. I can't stand him. I think he's one of the biggest scumbags. And for all intents and purposes, has taken part in one of like the most heinous things the NFL has ever seen, and, and suffered like zero repercussion for it. Meanwhile, Brady's going to miss uh, what four games, lose a million bucks for uh, deflating footballs. I hate the NFL so much. I just I, I can't I, I can't sugarcoat it. I, I let's not waste our time in the NFL. It's not NFL season. I'm sorry, I got sidetracked here. No, that's that's all right. That's all right. So. Let's uh, let's talk about this three-point shooting. Um, it was something I wanted to come back to, and this seems like as good a point as any to do it. Um, for the series, four-game series, Cavs made 77 three-pointers. The most, just for comparison's sake, the most they had made in any four-game stretch during the year 
was 61. Um, that was uh, that stat and the next couple that I'm going to throw at you here. These are all from uh, Brian Windhurst and uh, the ESPN Stats and Info people. Um, the one that really blew my mind in in uh, the series with Atlanta, they shot better from three-point range. Um, 51% they shot from three-point range. They were better from three-point range than they were from three feet and in. They shot 48%. Just to give you an idea, that charge circle that you see under the basket is four feet out. So a foot inside that and in, they shot 48%. And yet from outside the arc, they were shooting 51%. That just was staggering um, the way they shot the ball. And, and when I was talking earlier about the Atlanta players just being completely deflated by what uh, what the Cavs had done to them. They they even said we kept waiting for them to go cold and and start missing shots, and they just never did. Do you think they can keep anything remotely close to this up going forward? Um, I hope so. <laughs> I'll <laughs> say the stat that I found the most surprising, and I texted it to you the other day. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, before this series started and before the Golden State one, um, in the first round, the Cavs tied the record for most threes in a playoff game at 20. That was the record for a single game in the entire history of the NBA playoffs since the three-point line's been in existence. They averaged over 19 for a four-game series. They almost averaged the record for a four-game series, which is insane. I think to think that they can shoot that well is probably expecting a bit much. Um, Honestly, I expect whoever they play next to um, overcompensate on the threes and the Cavs to maybe have an easier time um, at those uh, closer shots, which, which is fine, whatever. I mean, if that's what ends up happening, if those are shots that they're giving them and they're able to take advantage, then that's great. Um, I think the way that they're shooting right now will uh, give them sort of that flexibility to not have to rely on the three as much. It certainly seems like the Cavs have found an identity and, and this is going to be what they want to be now. They they are going to spread the floor out. They're going to put per, uh, shooters on the perimeter. They're going to run the screen and roll. They're going to drive and, and, and kick it out and swing it around the perimeter and, and get their good looks. Um, and for me, it was just really nice to finally see them come up with something that was so overpowering like that, that it was finally forcing other teams to rearrange their lineup in order to try to counter what the Cavs were doing. Cause it just feels like for so long, we've seen situations where the Cavs were uh, mixing and matching pieces, trying to answer for what the opponent was doing. And it kind of frustrated me a little bit in the early part of that Detroit series, because I was like, the Cavs are the one seed here and Detroit's an eight seed you're obviously more talented than them. You should be dictating the terms of how this series goes. And it definitely seems like the Cavs are establishing something with that. Um, the one thing that I will say, um, let, let, let me ask you this. One of the guys that um, is kind of the, the, the leaders in this three-point barrage, J.R. Smith, we saw him go nuts. I think it was... Game two against Atlanta? Was it game one or game two? I want to say game two. I think you're right. Okay. It was it was one of the two home games. When he starts getting into a, a, a hot streak like that, I, I know it sounds like a cardinal sin in basketball. Would you consider start starting to hack him on the three-point line anytime he catches the ball? Considering he's not that good of a three-point, uh, three free, free, uh, excuse me, free throw shooter. Um, I, I gotta think no. Cause a lot, I mean, if you look at it, a lot of those shots are ones where he just catches and shoots while he's fading away or, you know, drifting sideways. So I'm not sure you'd even have time to follow him. And in most cases, if you do, I feel like the way that he was shooting, he's probably still going to make it. Um, but I, I personally think that when they're shooting like that, you'd be wise to, employee the uh, hack of Tristan a little more um, if he's out there or even hack JR if he's out there before he gets the ball um, or before he gets off a three. See, that's the thing. Like, it's probably a bad idea, but 
if you look at JR's numbers, he's actually a better shooter on contested jumpers. So just like straight up contesting him, it's not really going to make any sort of a, a difference on him. And, and he's really quietly a bad free throw shooter. Like yeah, you like, said, like, like I think his numbers are actually just about on par with Tristan in terms of free throw shooting. And everybody kind of always points to the big man. You don't really see a lot of guards getting um, being made the victims of the, you know, hack strategy. But I mean, he's really not a reliable free throw shooter. And it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, the, you, you might need to try if you're a, a team that's, you know, outmanned by the Cavs, you might want to try starting to do some crazy things. And I mean, who knows? You, you follow him. Um, doesn't shoot the free throws particularly well. Maybe he takes an exception to, to one of these fouls and does something stupid. I mean, wouldn't it be the first time that um, somebody's uh, baited him into doing something like that. I, I just, I I don't know. It, it would be something I would at least consider. Like I, I can't let him just go nuts shooting three point shots because he's certainly proven capable of doing that to this yeah. point. Yeah. Regarding his, uh, his, his higher percentage on contested shots. He, he is one who infamously once said, um, I don't like open shots. Open shots are boring. <laughs> so the fact that he, uh, the fact that he, and if you watch him play, it, it, it really sticks out to you. He, he does seem to sort of embrace the fact that there's a guy putting a hand in his face and he seems, I don't know if he, it makes him focus more or what the case is, but he has this uncanny ability to just, the, the circus shots he pulls off are insane. Like he'll be six, seven feet behind the three point line and just chuck one fading away because he's got it. And there's a couple seconds left and what's he going to do? And it goes in like he had that one insane shot where it was, uh, about two seconds left on the shot clock and we had to inbound it and he caught it probably 30 feet away from the basket and just lobs it up and in over a guy as he's fading away. And it's just like, you're not supposed to be able to do that. Um, but he seems to get it done pretty regularly. And it's, it's amazing. Talking about the, uh, the, the, the hacking strategy. Cause we were talking about that with Tristan. Is it just me or is that strategy kind of reached a, a, a new um, level of, of usage so far in these playoffs? I, I feel like it used to be one of those things that was like, there was only two or three players in the entire league where they'd be getting subjected to that um, that type of uh, a deal where they start getting hacked. And now this year in the playoffs, it's like it feels like almost every team has identified a guy on the opposing team who's a bad free throw shooter. And in the case of Atlanta, I mean, they – was it uh, – I think it was game three there. They, they literally wrapped up Tristan before the ball was inbounded to start the second half. I've yeah, never that seen was, that before. And, and that was a different one. Yeah, um, it just – I it, it feels like – just to me, it just seems like it's being taken to an extreme, and it's probably going to force the league's hand at some point this summer. Yeah, I, I'm sort of even – I guess the, the funny thing is they employed this, uh, this strategy against Tristan and the Cavs, and for the strategy to work when he goes and shoots and makes one or zero, um, you got to score next time down or – you're not gaining any ground. And Atlanta, I don't think, did a great job of doing that. So it sort of negated it. Um, but I can recall a couple times this year, um, we saw it against the Pistons. It, the Cavs were definitely able to piece together some runs when they were hacking Andre Drummond. Um, I don't know that Golden State has someone you can do that with. Um, I'm not sure who it would be on San Antonio. I'm just looking ahead here at who – if the Cavs are going to play someone in the finals, who who would they employ that? And obviously if it's the heat, it's going to be uh white side. If he's even back by then. Um, but Tristan's obviously the guy that if the Cavs go against someone who really wants to slow them down, he's the guy that's going to go to the line. And I mean, I would expect to see it next round, no matter what, just because as we've seen, the Cavs are so prone to going on these, these these hot streaks where they can't miss and teams are going to get desperate to slow them down one way or another as far as what the nba does about it i i'm sort of against changing it maybe adjust the rules a little bit um but i don't want i don't want anything in place where the guys who can't shoot just get bailed out 
I, I, I think if you're that bad of a free throw shooter, um, that sh- there should be some sort of not penalty, but you should it should hurt your team that you're that bad at something that is uh, there's only a handful of guys in the league that they even do that to. So if you're one of the five or six guys who's an awful shooter, um, that's sort of on you. They shouldn't make rules to adapt to you. That's my thing though, is I feel like it's becoming more than just five or six guys. Like if you, you, you were wondering about golden state. I mean, if it's golden state, you're probably looking at Festus Azili. Um, Cause he was, uh, I got it here. 53% free throw shooter. Uh, in the regular season. I don't think Andre Iguodala is particularly good shooting free throws either. So he'd be another guy you'd want to look at doing that too. Um, And and like Whiteside, you said with Miami and and there are definitely others. Yeah. The ironic thing though, with the Cavs and being the victims of that against um, Atlanta, um, I I don't know that we would have seen that Channing Fry Kevin Love pairing to start the fourth quarter that um, led the Cavs to end up outscoring them by 21 points in that stretch with those two guys on the floor. I mean, it was a relatively short, I mean, it was a quarter of the game and the Cavs um, basically ended their season effectively in that stretch. And I mean, Lou said after the game that they were planning on going to that anyway. I'm not really convinced because Tristan was playing pretty well outside of his free throw shooting to that point in the game. And then he ended up sitting the entire fourth quarter and maybe you would say, well, the other guys are playing so well, you just want to stick with the hot hand or something. But I don't know if we ever even see that combination put together um, if Atlanta isn't going to the uh, the hacking strategy. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess maybe we notice a little more because we have one of the guys who it happens to, but um... – has anyone been doing it in the Golden State series? I would think a team like Portland would probably do it if, um, you know, that's a team that you want to slow down if you can, um, buy yourself some time. I haven't, I haven't noticed it happening, um, so I guess I can't say for sure. And I don't know that it's necessarily happened in the San Antonio or Thunder series either. So I don't know if it's it's necessarily as widespread as we think. I just think when it does happen, when they target these guys, it gets a lot of attention. And and it, it truthfully, as much as I don't necessarily want them to change the rules, it does just kill the flow of the game. And it's not entertaining basketball. I understand that side of it. And so I think it just sort of resonates, and we maybe think it's a little more widespread than it actually is. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I It's an entertainment business, and free throws are not entertaining, and I know we go round and round in this and I'm sure we've talked about it here in the past. And I, I think that's ultimately going to be what, what pushes the, uh, the change through speaking of, of entertaining things. I, I am always personally entertained by listening to Hubie Brown call NBA games. And I love it when he does Cavs games. I learned this weekend as he called games three and four of the Atlanta series that, I might be in the minority with the uh, the people I follow on Twitter. It felt like the uh, the ESPN crew with uh, Tariko and, and Hubie Brown got a lot of hate from uh, from the Cavs fans. Um, how did you feel about those guys calling the games? I didn't I didn't notice them doing a particularly bad job. Um, I think Tariko is as good as they come. Um, Me too. Right now, just across the board in all sports, not necessarily just basketball. Um, so, uh, rarely going to hear me criticize him too much. I, I think Hubie's probably lost a step. Um, I'm with you. I think over the years, he's been one of the guys who, um, I think there's a lot of guys who just kind of call games and kind of go through the motions and they don't really add a whole lot. Um, he's a guy who really, I've always enjoyed. And I think he brings an, an extra dimension to watching a game that he's calling. Um, I don't know that he's necessarily as good as he's always been, but I, I wouldn't say I think you're right. You and I are probably in the minority. I, I enjoy Hubie. I think he's pretty decent. Um, there's definitely much worse out there. Um, and to be fair, if uh, <laughs> we've been watching Austin Carr all year, um, <laughs> who, don't get me wrong, I love AC and all, but uh, we can't really 
you know, complain too much about the national guy when that's what we've been listening to for 82 games during the season. Yeah, Hubie, I, I listened to a podcast with him about a month ago. He was on with Richard Deitch of uh, Sports Illustrated and was talking a lot about the amount of work that he puts in and, and what his prep is for every game and, and the amount of homework he does getting ready uh, to call a game. It's even now it's still incredible. And, and I always feel like I'm smarter as a basketball fan listening to him just by the way that he can break down X's and O's and he makes it really relatable to people who aren't necessarily hardcore um, NBA lifers. Um, I mean, I, I think I'm more into the NBA than most people. And even still like there's, there's stuff that can go over my head and he, I never get that with him. He always makes it very easy to understand. And, and I think the thing for him, and, and I saw a couple of people this weekend saying like, Oh, he hates the Cavs just because he was really lauding some of the things that Atlanta was doing. And I don't really think that's true at all. I, I think he was looking more than anything just to, see a, a competitive basketball game because he knows nobody wants to watch a blowout. And um, and he was, I think he tends to be um, very uh, expressive in, in terms of saying like, uh, you know, cheering good play, regardless of which team it's coming from. So when he actually, I mean, if he's going into a game thinking like Atlanta needs to do X, Y, and Z in order to make a game out of this against Cleveland because they're clearly outgunned, and he actually sees them execute a couple of those things. He's be like, "All right, they're 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 doing what they need to do." And you know, in terms of what you were saying about like the the local guys, I think one of the things that a lot of people tend to lose sight of is if you're watching local broadcasts for most of the regular season, um, the guys that are doing the local games are are really tasked with a very different job from the national. Um, yeah, they're supposed to be homers. They are. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're on the local broadcast, you're you're selling the product. I mean, you're you're trying to get people interested in the local team to get them to to come out and you know buy tickets and come to the games and and get into it and spend on the merchandise and and the video games and all the other stuff. And um, I I think that you know I think at the national level you want people to be interested in the NBA, but you don't have a vested interest in one of the two teams. So if you're used to seeing and listening all season, to a game being presented from your perspective, when you all of a sudden don't get that, it becomes very jarring. Um, I guess just for me it is, I mean, I, I love the Cavs, but I like being educated a little bit on the broadcast and, and getting real X's and O's talk and not just a lot of catchphrases. I, I prefer the national, but, um, I don't know. I, I think a lot of people here and a lot of people, honestly, that listen to us, I, I think they, they're looking for Fred and Austin Carr, to be honest with you. Sure. I think I think you hit the nail on the head there. When those when those local guys are, are doing it, they're selling the Cavs. They're covering the Cavs. This is the team they know. It's the team they're interested in. It's the team they care about. They're not and quite frankly, they're not nearly as knowledgeable about the team on the other sideline. They might watch some state tape and, and study up and learn the names and stuff, but they can't speak nearly as intelligently about the other team as they can about the Cavs. Um, so their their task really is selling the Cavs, while um, Hubie Brown is trying to sell that game. So when the Cavs are playing the Hawks, and clearly the Cavs are the superior team, he's going to try to bring it from a standpoint of here's what this other team who's a little outmatched is doing well here's things you can look for and I'll, I'll say every time I watch a game with Hubie Brown at least two or three times he shows me something that I wouldn't have seen and says it very simply to where a basketball layman someone who casually watches games here and there probably not even someone who doesn't watch as often as you and I do um learns a little more about the game and, and truthfully that's what you should really look for is a guy who you know in in the act of telling you what's going on teaches you a little bit more about it and I think Hubie does that really well uh and I think he always has honestly I think he's been one of the best in the business for quite some time yeah I'm a little bummed out because going forward I know that the Cavs um all of their games are going to be ESPN, ABC, because uh, ESPN's got the Eastern Conference Finals. So it's going to be, and, and it's going to be the lead crew. So you're, every Cavs game 
from now until whenever the postseason run ends through the finals, it's going to be Mike Breen with uh, Mark Jackson and Jeff Van Gundy. And um, at least for me personally, I think Breen's fine. Um, I, I like Tariq Moore. What's that? I don't care for the other two. Yeah, I when Van Gundy first came on ABC, I liked him, and he's developed some very bad habits in terms of just I, I the thing that drives me nuts is I feel like he dwells a little bit too much on overanalyzing every single call by the officials. And don't get me wrong, I think the officials need to be kept honest. But at the same time, I, I don't need a two and a half hour critique of the officiating. It, it it's tedious after a while, and um, I I don't know. I I've heard both of those analysts. Hey, man, Mark Jackson, both have been kind of rumored for some of the opening uh, open coaching jobs. So this might be the last year that those three guys are put together. But um, at least I think ever since Mark Jackson got on TV, he's been interviewing for his next gig. <laughs> Which I, he's always trying to just say something that's, you know, sort of off the wall. And I don't know. I just don't like him. I didn't like him when he was coaching Golden State. And I don't like him as an analyst. I don't know why he's one of those guys. Another one that just kind of rubs me the wrong way is uh, just sort of disingenuous about everything. And it is awkward that, uh, you know, he him being on their lead announced team. Obviously, they're going to do a lot of Golden State games because Golden State's the the top team in the league right now and the defending champs, and that's the team that let him go. And when they were a, a first round playoff team, and you know they bring in his replacement, and all of a sudden now they're winning the championship, and and he's got to sit there and call it, and you know it's it's. I think he's probably gotten over it at this point, but I mean there has to be a, at least some awkwardness there. I doubt he has. Um, he strikes me as a guy who who left in a uh, left in a rather I don't know bitter way. Like it wasn't a it wasn't a amicable separation, for lack of a better term. And seeing how Steve Kerr now is is widely lauded as you know this the next big thing, if if not the current big thing, and all these players that he had. Um, Steve Kerr is able to do so much more with. Um, I don't think that's something that you just get over and move on from. Yeah, that's a completely um, fair um, praise for Kerr. That, that's that's completely justified because I don't really think that Golden State roster is really that much different than than what Mark Jackson had. Um, Draymond, Draymond obviously is a huge part of that team, but outside of that, I'm not sure what else maybe a piece here and there, but most of the core was already there for Mark Jackson. Yeah. The, the big change was Kerr and, and now Kerr's running the show and they're winning 70 games plus. So I, Steve Kerr's a pretty cool dude. And I, I liked listening to him when he was a, a TV analyst. So um, in a perfect world, I guess we could clone Steve Kerr and he could still go keep coaching and, and doing his thing there. And then we could have clone Steve Kerr working in the booth or something, but <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I like Kerr, I think. Uh and just as a guy, he seems like a pretty decent guy. Um he's that guy that, you know, is on the other team and you don't want to like him, but you kind of do. Um, there are plenty of people I dislike on Golden State. Um he, he's not one of them. <laughs> right. He's at the bottom of the list. Right. Right. All right. Uh anything else? We good? What are we looking at? Wow, that time went quick. It did. Uh, uh, no, what do we got? It looks like, uh, well, this Miami-Toronto game is probably going to go down to the wire. Uh, Toronto's trying to nurse a small lead right now with a couple minutes left, but uh, any preference on who we play in the next round? No. I, I, Me neither. I've watched enough of this series to feel like there's – Absolutely no difference. I mean, I I guess just from the the psychological factor of LeBron playing in Miami is always something you got to stay on your toes for. Um, and I guess that would be a, a little bit more of a salacious uh, series from a, a storyline perspective. But um, talent wise, and and what these teams are they have to offer, I'm not really particularly concerned about facing either one of them. Yeah, same here. I mean, the only the only downside to Miami is uh, is just the potential distraction. I don't know that it would be. Um, 
I don't know that it would impact even the result of this series. Um, but I do think it could take a little bit of the focus away from the game, which might not be in their best interest. Um, they just showed the Miami game for a second, and uh, a thought just crossed my mind. Remember when we were like kind of disappointed about um, not getting Joe Johnson? Right. And we felt like Channing Frye was sort of like this consolation prize. Sure. <laughs> um, that we were wrong. <laughs> yes, we were. <laughs> I'm not sure how else to say it. I mean, um, to be fair, I, I, the the, uh, the Joe Johnson thing would have happened after Channing Frye because the Cavs made that trade first, and then the buyout for Joe Johnson was like a week later. So I, uh, I think the yeah. disappointment was not getting both. Although, I mean... I think had that happened um, and Joe Johnson, had he come here, I mean, does Channing Frye actually still get minutes in the postseason or are we forcing Joe Johnson out there? Yeah, I'm not sure where those minutes go. Um, I'll say I'm not sure if he would have been taking anyone's minutes. It might have been Shumps and Shump didn't play that great in the first series, but he played incredibly well the last uh, the last game against uh atlanta so if if we sort of wanted to see that and truthfully i'm not sure if joe johnson would be an upgrade from anyone that's getting minutes now not with the way the Cavs are playing now they are absolutely firing on all cylinders pretty high bar so yeah yeah i uh i agree Uh, have you just one more here before we we get out. But uh, did you? I know you didn't watch inside the NBA. Did you watch any of the the game last night with uh, OKC and San Antonio? Uh, I watched. I, I watched bits and pieces. I didn't watch the whole game. I caught sort of the summary that like five minute rundown that I always watch online for most games. Mm. Um, yeah, it's not just the the refs and the Cavs games that suck. Apparently, yeah, that ending sort of. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have as big of a problem with that. Um, just because I, I, if you don't hear a whistle, you shouldn't stop playing. And it seemed like they kind of gave the token foul and it just wasn't called and they stopped and it kind of burned them. And um, I have to think that Popovich or one of the, one of the guys went to the refs and said, Hey, if, if we can't do this, we're going to foul them. And that that's sort of just, understood in the NBA that when that happens, the refs look for it and they call it. Um, you, you probably see it happen all the time. And truthfully, if, if refs missed more of those, you'd probably see stuff like that happen a lot more. Um, and I'm drawing a blank on what the other huge screw up was. Oh, uh, on that follow they called on uh, Danny Green, where he uh, very, very clearly got tripped by an uh, extra extended Steven Adams leg that somehow went missed and, and ended up with an and one for the Spurs or for uh, the Thunder, excuse me, um, that also went missed somehow. It's it's just these, I don't know, I feel like you expect the officiating to get better in the playoffs and it, and it feels like it gets worse, but it could just be that the games are more important. They so are, and I think they're under a greater microscope. And Yeah, I'm sure that's true, and I'm admittedly as harsh on the NBA on the uh, at NBA official Twitter account as anybody, but um, I don't know. I feel like they should be better than they are. And maybe that's unfair. I've never done it obviously. So it's, it's not necessarily fair for me to say, but I've never played quarterback and I can tell you that Johnny Manziel wasn't a good one. That's true. I, I know that the, the San Antonio now has lost their last two home games to Oklahoma city here. And um, I'm sure from their perspective, the officiating was really a huge, huge part of that. And the last game with that whole crazy sequence with uh, Dion inbounding the ball and all hell breaking loose. um, I think they absolutely had a legitimate gripe there. The the one last night, I I don't know. It just didn't bother me as much because like when OKC uh, got that last three point play to put the game on ice, I mean, they were winning anyway and, and they had been, uh, trailing for a large portion of that fourth quarter. And they went on a very big run to, to close that fourth quarter. And to me, it was more about them rising to the occasion and making big baskets and overtaking San Antonio and San Antonio looking a step slow than it was about the officials taking it away from the Spurs. I, I was really impressed 
with what OKC was able to do last night. And I, I think there's a lot of tension around that team just because of Kevin Durant's um, pen, uh, pending free agency or in, in what's going to be, you know, the unknown for him coming up after the season. And we know what that's like with LeBron and we saw how that affected the Cavs in 2010. And to see them as an underdog in this series against the Spurs, it really rising to the occasion and winning two games on the road in a building where the home team had only lost once the entire year. Um, I just, I think it's really impressive what they're doing and I'll be really interested to see if they can finish this thing off tomorrow. I don't think we, any of us saw, um, I think we maybe just took, took for, uh, took for granted that that Spurs game, uh, the Spurs were going to take that series probably fairly easily. Um, I don't think we envisioned a scenario where, uh, Oklahoma city had the chance to clinch the series at home, um, which they do tomorrow, which is sort of crazy in the way that they're playing now. Um, I don't know. It makes, I think they're suddenly a bigger threat than anyone really thought they were. They sort of seemed like that third team, uh, in the West that nobody really thought had a legit chance because they would have to go through OKC and golden state. And the more we watch them play, I think it seems more possible that they could potentially get there. I just feel like from a pure athleticism standpoint with having Durant and Westbrook, I, I think they can give golden state a, a bit of a challenge in the conference final. Um, I, I think, I don't think they have enough, to win that series. I actually did think they had a chance against um, San Antonio. Uh, I, I gun to my head. I was going to pick the Spurs in that series, but um, I, I don't know. I, I think that if we do, and believe me, the Spurs are as tough a team as there is in the league. And, and they're a, a veteran bunch there and I'm not writing them off. I mean, it's extremely possible um, that they could come back, handle their business tomorrow. And then, you know, win the series in uh, in Game Seven this weekend. But uh, if we do get a, a Golden State Oklahoma City uh, conference final, I I think it would be an interesting matchup, and and I do think Oklahoma City could give them a little bit of a hard time. Yeah, I think they give them a hard time. I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure how I'd feel about them taking a series. Although I don't know Golden State. I just I feel like Curry, even though yeah he went off the other night, I'm not sure that he's. Uh, going to be fully back to 100%, and if that's the case, um, OKC's definitely got the firepower to take advantage of that. So, we'll see. It could be entertaining, I think. Um, but obviously, the series Spurs isn't over yet, so still got to see what happens there, but um, let's focus on the East. That's where our boys are at. That's true. We will uh, We will see. Um, so, either Sunday, Sunday afternoon, or Tuesday night is going to be game one of the East Finals. If uh, if this uh, Miami-Toronto series wraps up in six games, it's uh, Cavs will play on Sunday, and if it has to go to seven, then Cavs will be back on Tuesday night. So Cavs will be off for a solid nine days at that point. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll see how it goes. Didn't hurt them last time. No, it, uh, they seem to they seem to take advantage of the rest and not come back rusty. So that's uh that's what you hope for. So. Good to see. I got no problem with the rest and, and watching these other teams play more games. I mean, we've seen the, the toll it can take on them. So um, I, I think the Cavs have done absolutely everything they can to put themselves in a great position. And hopefully this uh, carries on into the next round. So we'll see. Yep, absolutely. All right. Uh, we are, uh, we're we're going to call it a day here. So uh, as always, you can uh, catch us on thenailpodcast.com. Uh, iTunes, uh, Google Play Music, and uh, Facebook. We uh, got the Facebook page there, uh, facebook.com slash um, The Nail Podcast. And uh, we will be back next week. Eastern Conference Finals will probably already be underway by the time uh, we join you again. So we will uh, get into that series and more. So uh, for Travis Julie, this is Tom Valentino. It's been The Nail in the Coffin, and uh, we will talk to you next week. Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial. 
a veteran of the paddle tennis world and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning or have never even heard of paddle or padel as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with a pro tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!